All right, uh, if you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, tablets, whatever you may have, uh, Mark 10 is where we're going to be spending the time this morning. Mark 10. So you can turn there. And I'm going to tell a story this morning. I'm going to tell a story about a guy named Richard. You can just kind of hang out. We're going to be in Mark 10 for most of the morning, and we'll refer uh, back and forth to that. But I'm going to tell a story about a, a guy named Richard. <clears throat> there was once a man named Richard, and Richard came from a very, very wealthy family. He was young. He had resources and land and servants and really anything that he ever wanted. Now, I'll pause here. And for those of you who are not following, Richard is the guy in Mark 10, the rich young ruler, all right? <laughs> I don't want people to be super confused about this. Essentially, what I'm doing is kind of retelling this story. So he was young. He had resources. He had land. He had servants. And really, anything that Richard could have ever wanted, he had, except the answers to some of life's most compelling questions. He heard that in, the, uh, in his small Middle, East, Middle Eastern town, a wise teacher named Jesus was traveling through. And when news about Jesus had spread, Richard sought out to find this wise teacher and ask him the single question that had eluded him for years. And just as Jesus was exiting the town, Richard runs up behind him and falls on his knees and exclaims, Good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, with a a wry smile, kind of turns around looks at the man and strangely asks, why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God is truly good? Jesus continued pointing out that Richard was indeed a learned man and knew the law. He said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And Richard assuredly looked back into Jesus' eyes thinking he was getting closer to receiving the answer to this question that had eluded him. And he said, Teacher, I have kept all of these things since I was a young boy. Very, very confident. And at that moment, the disciples that were standing near and following Jesus and witnessing this entire conversation could sense the love that Jesus had for Richard. It was palpable in that moment. And with compassion, Jesus looked right into Richard's eyes, exclaiming, You still lack one thing, Rich. You need to go sell all of your possessions. Give what you have to the poor. Then you will have the treasure you seek in heaven. Do this and follow me. In hearing Jesus' words, Richard's heart became heavy. And a sadness kind of fell over the situation. You see, Richard owned a great deal of property, and he knew, he was honest enough with himself to know that he was unable to give up his possessions because they had become so important to his life. And so with grief, he slowly turns around and walks away, wondering why Jesus would ever want him to give up that which he worked so hard for. 
there are a few stories from the scripture that I feel like I can really identify with. I often read, and there seems to be significant distance between my experience, my culture, and the person or the situation that Jesus is interacting with. I don't see a lot of crossover. But this story, the rich young ruler, is one that I totally get. I read it, and it makes an incredible amount of sense to me. I think I can, be, uh, can identify with it because in a lot of ways, I am a rich young ruler. In a lot of ways, I would say we all are rich young rulers. We live in a culture of affluence and resource. Our society affords us the opportunity to live freely, to make our own decisions as to how we work, how we spend our money, to own property. There are really no limitations on what we can do and what we can be in our culture. This would have been the same for Richard in the first century. There were really no limitations on who he could be, what he could do. And I think I identify with this too because also, like Richard, I know all of these answers. You see, I've been churched long enough, I can recite all of the important things from Scripture, and yet sometimes there is still a deep emptiness that I feel in my life. That thing that kind of creeps up in the darkness of night, where you begin to question purpose and meaning, questions of value. You see, when you actually look at the story, when you read Mark 10, in a lot of ways, the rich young ruler did everything correct. He was the one that pursued Jesus, right? Jesus was leaving town, and the rich young ruler goes out and pursues him earnestly. He even humbles himself and falls on his knees before Jesus. So he came with humility. He rightly calls Jesus good in that moment. He even disciplined himself to keep the religious and culturally important commandments of his time. He did a lot of things correctly. I think Richard had a lot going on for him. He was right there. He'd done mostly everything right, except for one. From the outside looking in, he was an incredibly faithful and religious person. But he still missed the point. After his interaction with Richard, Jesus turns to his disciples, and now I'm reading from the scripture, said to his disciples, how hard will it be for those... uh, Uh, for those who are wealthy, to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus turned to his disciples and asked the question that everyone is thinking in that moment. How hard will it be for Richard to enter heaven? And then responding to his own question, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Basically, in this moment, Jesus is saying it's impossible. Some commentators have looked at this and have tried to soften the teaching of Jesus, postulating that Jesus was actually speaking about a gate in the wall around Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. 
And there was a specific gate in the wall that was made small for security reasons and that a camel could pass through. But in order to do that, they would have to be stripped of their saddle, stripped of all the packs that they would have on. And then the camel would have to kind of slide through on its knees to get through this. So historically looking at, commentators have said, ah, oh, there's this needle gate thing and it would have been incredibly difficult for a camel to get through. They've got to be stripped of their stuff, but it could happen. It's possible. It takes a lot more work, but it could happen. Sometimes I read commentators' stuff on the scripture and I think it's incredibly convenient that rich, white, educated males came to that conclusion. <laughs> because Jesus couldn't possibly mean that money and possessions could present significant difficulty for entering the kingdom, right? Jesus couldn't possibly mean that. However, some scholars disagree. F.F. Bruce soberly calls this interpretation, the one about the needle gate, a charming one, but that there is no evidence that such an entrance called the eye of the needle even existed in biblical times. What seems more plausible to me to many scholars, is that Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate the point that wealth and possessions are a significant obstacle to truly receiving the kingdom of God. When we read Mark 10, when we read about Richard, I think this teaching should give us incredible pause. Because we live in a moment of time that could be categorized as the most affluent culture in the history of mankind. Our 21st century lens is one of absurdly expansive economic resources. And this is maybe where I get a little bit sad and angry, so I apologize. We have expressed, uh, experienced unprecedented wealth, access to resources, growth and opportunity. Russ made this statement a few years ago when we talked about money last, which <laughs> a few years ago when we talked about it. Uh, talking about the extravagance in which we live in, and he said, how many people have, uh, you know, six pennies in their car ashtray right now, or four quarters? And most of us raised our hand and said, yeah, we have that. And then he pointed to the fact that if you have spare change in your car, you're amongst the 1% in the world. That makes you that rich to have spare change, or if you have spare change in your car. So I actually uh, kind of fact-checked Russ on this one. I wanted to make sure that, that he didn't just make that up. I couldn't find uh, that stat at all, so maybe he did make it up, but here's what I did find. <laughs> when you uh, type in a Google search around that idea, there is a significant amount of articles uh, with the, uh, the titles like this, How to Organize Your Pesky Loose Change. And they're like from real simple catalogs and that kind of stuff. And that might even speak more to the wealth that we have. That we are so insanely rich, we actually need other people to help us organize the money that is too small for us to spend. We can't handle it. We don't know what to do with our loose change. So I need to go to the internet to figure out a better way to organize the money that I will never have time to actually spend. I would argue that our lives are so filled with stuff that I'm not even sure we can truly see Jesus anymore. My wife and I are a two-car family, but both of us have to park outside of our garage right now because it's so filled with our own junk. We can't even fit it 
inside of our own basement, and so all that extra stuff goes in our garage, and now we park on the street. We have so much stuff, we use entire rooms in our house, and we rent small garages away from our house to store it all. The storage facility industry is strong. 50,000 of them are in America now. Many storage places. This means that each American has 7.3 square feet of storage space available to them. Meaning the entire U.S. population could stand with arms outstretched under the canopy of self-storage facility roofing. We all have 7.3 feet of additional storage space in America. Did you know that 40% of all the food that we produce is thrown away? 40% of all the food we produce is thrown away. To think the obsessively abundant and absurdly wealthy culture we live in has not affected our understanding of Jesus or our ability to truly follow him is incredibly ignorant. The materialism of our culture has shaped us and I believe it's fundamentally distorted our view of Jesus and our understanding of church. Matt McDonald said this, and it's a longer quote, uh, but I think it's a good one. He says, practically applied materialism is a way of viewing the world that says that things satisfy us. Products fix what is broken and success is always a matter of material, whether it be money or the power and social standing that money brings. It causes us to make decisions regarding everything from our careers to our marriages based on their potential material benefit to us. It offers finite, disposable solutions to deep, complicated questions. If we as Christians let ourselves be affected by these lies, then we will mistakenly try to weave them into our faith in a way that makes sense and justifies them. We develop ways of acting out our faith that reflect an inward bent toward viewing things materially. It is this materialism and consumerism that has led many Christians to think of the church as a place to go and be fed rather than an entity in which to belong. The church was not a social club to be joined and attended casually. It was a way of life that affected how believers viewed everything in their lives. Just like Richard experienced, materialism is a barrier that I believe we absolutely need to acknowledge in our own lives. I think this morning we need to recognize the shared story that we have with the rich young ruler. Not to glance over the truth of Jesus' teaching, justifying the way that we live because we use words like stewardship, because we budget well, because we give 10%, or because we listen to Dave Ramsey. For too long, I believe, we systematically shut out Jesus' teaching about money because we have a sickness. And that sickness is our stuff and our money. And it chokes Jesus out of our lives. Richard Foster says, Contemporary culture is plagued by a passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust of affluence in our contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. We feel strained, hurried, and breathless. The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more frequently threatens to overwhelm us. It seems that there is no 
escape from the rat race. It's increasingly difficult to follow Jesus into his kingdom when we are weighed down by our stuff. Richard knew himself well enough to know that he was unwilling to take that final step. He knew he couldn't give it up. I own too much property. I'm not willing to give that up to follow Jesus. A question to think about, and you don't have to raise your hands, you don't have to answer now, but I hope maybe we can find answers in the following few weeks. Does anyone else feel like they have a hard time taking that final step? I hate that I can look at my life and easily justify the excess that I live in and have grown accustomed to. That it's easy for me to pretend I don't have a problem. It's easy for me to pretend that I don't have a sickness. But I honestly think that we all do. Jesus desires us to follow him. But I don't think we can if we're unwilling to acknowledge how the sickness has become an idol and how it's consumed our thoughts, and how it's too often what we turn to to fill those empty spaces in our life. I would argue that our abundant wealth is blinding us of our spiritual poverty. And no matter how much we try to deny it, we are in part a product of our environment. And that this means the perverse materialism of the 21st century influences us and it affects us. Richard was irrevocably changed by his wealth and it's what hid him from finding the answers to the questions that had plagued him his whole life. And it's what kept him from true relationship with Jesus. We, like Richard, find ourselves having to make a decision. How long will we be, just, how long will we be satisfied feeling like we deserve the abundance of the stuff that we have? How long will we try to convince ourselves that buying that next thing will be the thing that makes us happy and feel complete? How long are we okay allowing our possessions to possess us? I think Jesus looks at our lives and offers the answer. Give it up. Sell it. Get rid of it. Remove it from your life. Change the way you understand your stuff. Look at me before you look at your things. Desire me before you desire something new. Let go of your things so that you can grab on to the life that I am freely offering. You see, our wealth and our stuff will never be enough. It will never give us purpose. It will never lead to meaning it might <clears throat> provide a short-term fix, but it will never last. And as we're hanging up that next pair of jeans or putting one more thing in our garage to store, I think we begin to feel more and more empty. Our wealth and stuff will never, ever save us. So like I said, this morning is not intended to offer nearly as many answers as it was intended to open a discussion for the following weeks. It was intended to set the stage for where we find ourselves and to paint a picture, although a bleak one, of the reality in which we stand. 
And in the following three weeks, as we're here on Sunday mornings, as you are with each other uh, in community, in group, outside of this, begin to dialogue about this stuff. Begin to identify maybe that sickness that you have, if you can identify with Richard. And in the coming weeks, we hope to offer some practical applications, some of Jesus' teachings on this, so that we can better understand and deal with and overcome the reality that we find ourselves in. But let me close with, with, with this, because when Richard left, I imagine Jesus was saddened. If I'm real honest, I would say in the same way I think Jesus looks in on our lives and might be saddened in the same way. But in the end of the story, Jesus offers a promise. Mark 10, 26 and 27. It says, looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. But with God, for all things are possible with God. When his disciples asked who can be saved, he assured them, the disciples, he assures us that our efforts, our accomplishments, our success, our wealth, our stuff will never be enough, but that through God, all things are possible. So although the situation is dire, we need to hold on to the hope that with God, all things are possible, that Jesus is the one who can save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have already been saved. The work has been done. And now we can turn to God with open hands, wanting and desiring to change, trusting that he will make good on his promise that all things are possible, and that we can be different. Would you pray with me?